0: But it's never been global. It's never been totally destructive. God's method for the future will not be with a flood. It will be with fire. It's interesting as we listen to our friends in, in Maui. You know, the word apocalyptic keeps coming up as they're describing what they experienced. It was apocalyptic. Yeah, it was. Very... Ooh. <laughs> Verse 22, while the earth remains, seed time and harvest. This is God speaking, it would seem. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, winter and summer. (laughs) In summer. (laughs) Welcome to winter, Chris. It's the first time the word winter is used. So evidently after the flood, the the atmosphere conditions have changed. And now we have cold and winter and day and night shall not cease. So here we go. So God blessed Noah and his sons, and he said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. This is the very same thing that God commanded Adam when he made Adam, and he started a whole thing. This is like Earth 201, right? This is a, a reboot, and we're starting all over again. There's eight people, Noah, his wife, his three sons, and their wives. And we're starting all over again, and God... God loves fruitfulness. He loves it. He loves reproduction. Okay? God loves children. Right? The disciples had to learn that. It's, you know, the Lord in his busy public ministry, that some of the moms and dads would bring their little kids. Not because there was any special need. It's just because they're kids. We want our kids to touch Jesus and to see this God-man from heaven And the disciples were like, no, 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 no. He's too busy for little kids. The Lord got angry. One of the few times he actually got indignant. And he said, you let the little children come to me. The Lord loves rebirth. He loves reproduction. And so I see a lot of things going on. Just, well, a few things, not a lot of things, but a few things here in this reminder of the command be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. He's actually going to repeat himself again in verse 7. You can look at it. He says as for you be fruitful and multiply, bring forth abundantly in the earth and multiply in it. So it's it's the obvious is there's a physical sense to this. God loves new babies, right? But there's also a spiritual sense. And if we see the correlation between Noah and his family, and Christianity in the church, then the Lord loves spiritual growth. He loves new birth, right? We're all born a second time, and that starts a new birth. And the Lord loves multiplication, right? And addition. And he's okay with subtraction too, by the way. <laughs> Sometimes divisions and subtractions happen in a church, and it's, it's painful, but the Lord works all things together for good. And it all ends up being great and God is glorified. Sometimes there's church discipline where there's actually an intended division or subtraction for the health and the sake of the church. So this this concept of being fruitful and multiplying, yeah, it has a physical, it also has a spiritual, it also has a prophetical. And by that I mean the promise of the Messiah that God had given to Adam in Genesis 3.15. From the woman will come the one who will crush Satan's head through his death and resurrection and his second coming. And so it's a reviving of the hope. It's a reviving of the hope of the promise that God had prophetically given to Adam. Garden of Eden's gone. You all know that, right? The flood has destroyed the Garden of Eden. There was cherubim protecting the entrance to the garden. That's, everything's new now. It's a new heaven and a new earth, so to speak. Well, very much so. So, fruitfulness. Verse 2. And the fear of you and the dread of you shall be on every beast of the earth, on every bird of the air, on all that move on the earth, and all the fish of the sea. They are given into your hand. Now, that's very that's apparently very different Obviously, it's very different because when, Noah, when, when God instructed Noah to build the ark, he said, I will bring the animals to you. And so the animals ran for cover, two by two, right? And um, apparently Noah lived on the ark for about a year, so he was friendly with them and they appreciated Noah's care. And off the ark they come. And there's a change now in the relationship between man and animal. And uh, the Lord said, I'm going to put the fear of you in them. And then he says in verse 3, every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. No wonder they're afraid. Now my friend becomes my prey. <laughs> you look like you'd be wonderful on our dining room table. <laughs> right? Yeah. By the way, the fear of you upon the animal kingdom and the relationship with man, you guys all know that whole thing reverses when Jesus comes again. The promise of that is in Isaiah 11. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat and the calf and the lion and the fatted calf together and a little child will lead them. You're going to put a halter On a wolf, or on a leopard, or on a lion. It says, The cow and the bear shall graze, their young ones shall lie down together, the nursing child shall play by the cobra's hole, and a weaned child will put his hand in the viper's den. So that's it, tells me that God is actively involved in the affairs of this life, and He took his hand off, I guess you'd say, in some way on the animal kingdom, and there became this this disruption between man and beast. But it's all going to get reversed. I also find it very interesting that when Mark in chapter one, when he talks about Jesus going into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil for 40 days, he adds that one little sentence, and it says, Jesus was with the wild animals. I thought here, and it doesn't say that it was a, a, a fearful thing and that they were at odds with each other. I think creature saw their creator. I think Jesus is petting the cobra. <laughs> I have no idea. Right? And so, yeah. So we see right in the new kingdom, in the new Testament, Peter was instructed God gave him a vision and this sheet lowers, lower down from heaven in Acts chapter 10. And on that sheet were all these non-kosher foods. And he said, rise, kill and eat. And he's saying, look, what I've called clean, don't call it unclean. And he changed the behavior of the believers. Now there's liberty to enjoy all things in moderation under the control of the spirit. And so there a, seems a beautiful correlation in that there's fruitfulness and now there's your food. <laughs> you can eat whatever you want. I've given you all things, even as the green herbs. Verse 4, but you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is its blood. Now that is really interesting. So don't act like an animal. Kill a creature and then just dive right in and gorge. <laughs> right? Bleed it out. right? Now you and I, we understand. The Lord said you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is its blood. There is a respect for the blood. Amen? Because in the blood is life. Jesus plainly said that. Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Ah, offensive language. Sounds cannibalistic. Absolutely not. The Lord is saying, unless you believe in my death and resurrection for your salvation, you have no life in you. The life is in the blood. Just a quick review Of some of the scriptures, and I'm not going to give you all the references, I'm just going to make statements from Romans and Ephesians and Hebrews about the life and the power and the effect of blood in the heart and the mind of a Christian. We are justified by his blood, redemption through his blood, peace through the blood of the cross, Colossians 1.20. The blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin, 1 John 1.7. We have... Access, we can enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus. That famous verse, Revelation 12 11, they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony. Amen? The life is in the blood. That couldn't have been more clear than in the Exodus, in the Passover, in the book of Exodus, right? The life was in the blood. When the judging angel saw the blood that had been applied to the home by faith, death passed over and they escaped slavery alive with a new beginning. Life is in the blood. Put your faith for your sin in Jesus Christ. You will be forgiven of all your sin. You haven't even committed stuff that he's already forgiven. We are justified and we are redeemed and we have peace and his blood continually cleanses us. Access to him in prayer and in worship. Blood. Wow, this is a really, this is like a New Testament study in the book of Genesis. It's really cool. Verse 5 and 6. And here is where we get the idea of human government. Makes it very clear. Verse 5. Surely for your lifeblood, I will demand a reckoning. From the hand of every beast, I will require it. And from the hand of man. From the hand of every man's brother, I will require the life of man. And then the Lord gives us this little, almost like a poem. Whoever sheds man's blood by man his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God, he made man. Now that's really powerful, (laughs) right? So there's a really deep subject. We're talking about death penalty stuff, right? We're talking about God is now saying, I want men, mankind to govern their fellow man Okay? A a judiciary needs to be set up. Now, how's that going to work? And what's that actually look like? Well, I take a cue from God Himself. When He addressed the first murderer, Cain, first there was inquiry where's your brother? He lied. I don't know. Murderers lie. And then he presented evidence. Well, the blood of your brother, righteous brother Abel is crying out to me. You're lying, Cain. And then there was a sentence. Interesting that the first murderer, God did not take his life. He could have. But he put a mark on him and he let him live with that for the rest of his life. Doesn't it seem weird? It seems like God is contradicting his own rules, but it just seems to show me that mercy triumphs over judgment And it also tells me that in the context of of honest, judicial, justice, governmental oversight of our fellow men, we need to be calm and patient and inquisitive and make sure we got the story straight. Be very careful and don't be hasty. And And in the end, if there's a guilty verdict, then the Lord is saying... Use the the authority that I've put into your hands to stop the spread of depravity. Romans chapter 13 comes into play here. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. He, that is the overseers, the governors, is the servant of God, an avenger, who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Genesis chapter 9, Romans 13. It all works together. So a Christian recognizes the the uh, uh, hierarchical the the authority of structure that that God has put in place and we are we're Commanded by Paul in 1 Timothy 2, pray for your government leaders, for kings and for all that are in authority, local, state, federal. Pray for them. It's hard to pray for them, isn't it? Because it just feels like nothing's going to change. It's just such a toxic, broken system that it's every man ruling for their own benefit so they can get reelected or stay in office or to push their agenda, and it seems like nobody's really serving in the fear of God. Maybe that's why we need to pray. There's always a remnant. There's always a remnant. There always is a remnant. God has his people in capital, in the capitals, in our state, and federal. He has his men and women there. And pray for them that they would stay revived and fresh and influential. and Not affected. Feeling a little stuffy. Priscilla, could you just tap that down butt arrow a little bit? Let me get a little, little bit of air going here. Okay. So, where are we? Oh, verse eight. Well, the Lord, as we already read, he reminds them be fruitful and multiply. Bring forth abundantly in the earth and multiply in it. So God loves fruitfulness, amen? Verses 8 through 11 is now the first mention of covenant. Well, it's actually the second mention of covenant, but we get uh, a greater understanding of what this covenant is. Uh, before I get into that, let me just say this. A covenant is not a contract. There is a difference, okay? A contract is, has an end date. There's usually goods and services, and it's not super personal. It doesn't have to be. It can be. Right? I used to be in sales and I would you know, try to get contracts from my customers so that we could supply them the building materials needed. Loved it, but I'd have relationship. But uh, that's, you know, it's, it has, mainly it's, it's not, doesn't require the whole person. I didn't have to get super involved with my friends. And it's usually an end date. When the end of the agreement is over, then it's it. A covenant is permanent. Right, a covenant is permanent. Uh, it's personal. It involves a total people, totally involved with each other. Uh, there's oftentimes it comes with a sign. I'm talking about biblical covenants, right? And this is the first of several covenants in the Bible. There was a covenant that God made to through Moses to His people with. There's a covenant that God gave to David, right? That uh, the Messiah would come from his family line. So uh, it's permanent. It doesn't have a, an end date. It's very personal. Often comes with a sign and it frequently has promises attached to it, as we see here. So there we go. Then God spoke to Noah and to his sons. Now God's speaking to these men. They're hearing with their ears and their heart. And as for me, behold, I establish my covenant, I establish my covenant with you and your descendants after you, and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the cattle, every beast of the earth with you, of all that go out of the ark, every beast of the earth. Thus, I establish my covenant with you. Never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood. Never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. So... Uh, three things that you'll notice from this covenant. First of all, God's the soul He's the only one doing this all right uh, Unilateral would be the word there. All right. It's God's doing it alone. <laughs> I work alone, buddy um, Incredibles great line uh, Incredible Bob there um, So it's unilateral it's unconditional. There's nothing on humanity's part that is required. Is God just graciously telling people, I'm making, and it's universal. It's for all, anybody that's alive on the earth, unilateral, unconditional, and universal, right? I myself, and God can't lie. So he's establishing this covenant. Verse 12 to 17, then God goes off about the sign that attaches to the covenant. So it's permanent. It comes with a promise. It's very personal. It's between the sovereign God and all mankind for all time. And then he gives a sign. God said, this is the sign of the covenant, which I make between me and you. It's very personal. And every living creature that is with you for perpetual generations. It's a permanent thing. I set my rainbow in the cloud, and it shall be for the sign of the covenant between me and the earth. It shall be when I bring a cloud over the earth that the rainbow will be seen in the cloud. And I will remember my covenant, which is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. The waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. As I've said earlier, there's been some devastating, tremendously devastating floods, but never on that scale. So God is faithful, right? He's always been for for millennia now. Verse 16, the rainbow shall be in the cloud, and I will look on it to remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. Derek Kigner said the whole tone of this idea of I will remember The whole tone of the paragraph is accommodated to our need of assurance. Let me say that again. Because God can't forget. He's not saying, we understand that. He's God. He's eternal. He knows all things. He says, but when he says, I will remember, Kidner, I think, caught it very nicely. He said, the whole tone is accommodated to our need of assurance. So we look up or we look out and we see the rainbow. God looks down and he goes like, yep, that's the vow that I've made for all time. Pop quiz, feel free to just give the answer. How many colors are visible in a rainbow? Anybody know? Bev Suey knows everything. <laughs> Seven, right? What are they? Roy G. Biv, right. Red, orange, yellow, green, blue, indigo, violet. Yes. Roy G. Biv. It's the way you remember them. Seven colors. Fascinating. So you've got to have light and the light gets fused through the water molecule and it displays the beauty of light. Isn't that awesome? So there's. There's there's clouds which would remind Noah, especially of all people, judgment. Oh no, I've screwed up. God's going to punish me now. Oh no, Noah. <laughs> I'm going to let my sun shine through that water molecules, and it's going to remind you what I said. That's a sign. That rainbow is a beautiful, beautiful picture. Unfortunately, it's been it means so many other things these days. How many colors in the gay pride flag? Not seven, six. Interesting, very interesting actually, because six is a number for man. Seven is the number for completion, perfection. It's God's number. On the seventh day, all things were finished. God blessed the seventh day. It's unfortunate that it means something that's forgotten. God said to Noah, verse 17, this is a sign of the covenant which I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. God makes his sun shine on the just and the unjust. And he makes his rain fall on the godly and the ungodly. So whether you're flying a rainbow flag, or where you're trusting in the rainbow, he is gracious and good and forgiving. And it's a reminder. And oh, if our friends would come to realize that God's wrath has been appeased through Jesus for, for sin. Just set that issue aside for a moment. And let's just talk about the -the run-of-the-mill everyday stuff that we all are subject to. Pride. And, And materialism. And lying and all the things. By the way, you go to the book of Revelation, and John is taken up in the spirit into heaven you know what he sees he sees a throne And one seating on sitting on the throne full of light revelation 4 verse 3 and it says a throne was set in heaven and around the throne was a rainbow what's the rainbow mean the sign of the covenant what's it actually what's it mean it means that god is sovereign that he's faithful and we have assurance that he will not judge me if my faith is in him god is sovereign he's faithful and we have assurance it gives us assurance Well, verses 18 to 24, this is pretty weird. (laughs) Now, the sons of Noah who went out of the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. I don't know why they call them Ham. (laughs) What an interesting name. And Ham was the father of Canaan. All right. These three were the sons of Noah and from these the whole earth was populated. And it says Noah began to be a farmer and he planted a vineyard. I checked it out since we live in the land of many vineyards, right? That uh, from the time of planting, and it depends on a lot of conditions and such, but generally from the time of planting to the time of harvest, your first harvest can be about three years or more. Noah knew what he was doing. He planted a vineyard. It's his second career, okay? For the last 100 years, he's been a shipbuilder. And now he's kind of you know advanced in age and he's starting a second career. And he's like, I think I'll just chill out on my little farm. I'll, I'm gonna plant a vineyard. Maybe raise some animals. I don't know. But he, he knew what he was doing. I, I don't think that in this, in this story that he had his first taste of wine. I think that he knew what he was doing. Where did he get the vine to start with? I don't know. Maybe it just grew back up out of the earth. And he began to cultivate it. And he began to work the soil. And he was a very smart man, Noah. Um, Know anything about vineyards, Jonathan? (laughs) Anyway. Verse 21, then he drank of the wine and was drunk and became uncovered in his tent. Well, it wasn't public nudity, at least that's a good thing. (laughs) All right, so he got staggering drunk, goes into his tent and in the midst of it all, he rips his clothes off. (laughs) And he's lying there, passed out, 22. And Ham, the father of Canaan, you're going to notice that. Now Canaan gets mentioned here a whole bunch of times. Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. But Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders, and went backward and covered the nakedness of their father their faces were turned away and they did not see their father's nakedness. So Noah awoke from his wine and he knew what his younger son had done to him, had done to him. I wish you didn't say that because up until then, I'm like, okay, Ham saw what he shouldn't have seen. He saw his dad exposed, but it says Noah woke up and he knew what was done to him. And it sounds like maybe there was some sexual abuse honestly, it, it, your mind goes there, right? You got two men alone in a tent, and one of them's naked, right? Um, I don't think that's what happened. A uh, careful study, and I was aided a lot by commentators, because I'm trying to make sense out of this, and that caused me to study the words of this text, and it says that Ham told his two brothers outside. And more literally, what it means is he was speaking with delight about the failure of his father is really what it meant. And he's showing a lack of respect for his dad is really what it is. And then I got thinking, how do I respond when I become aware of my brother in Christ and I become aware of their sin? Or I see a failure. Am I a, do I walk around and blab it all over the place? And it's love covers a multitude of sin. Amen. So Japheth and Shem did the right thing. They covered up their dad. We're not gonna, we're not gonna look at this. They showed respect for dad, they showed a respect for God, right? Uh, Ham saw his father exposed and then he went, and here's how I thought of it, he saw his father was exposed and then he went out and he exposed his father to his brothers. And in the process he exposed his own heart. That I don't really respect dad, and therefore I don't really respect the dad that God has given me. And so it's a that's what happened. So before I move on from this, because we're gonna just close with the exhortation here is that I wanna bring out is, is finishing well, finishing y- your race well, get to the finish line. We don't know when the end of our time is, but for Noah, right, it's a second career. He's, he's into his second phase of life now. And the finishing line is becoming a little more visible. And he's, he's, I just want to use this as encouragement to finish well. And we'll talk about that. But first, a word about alcohol. First, a word about alcohol. It's not wrong for Christians to drink. Okay? It's wrong for Christians to get drunk. The New Testament, uh, in the New Testament, we see wine. Uh, being used medicinally actually. This is just a little side note here, but Paul famously said to Pastor Timothy, don't just keep drinking water, but use a little wine for your stomach's sake and your often infirmities. And I think the key words are use a little. There's a purpose for the wine, Timothy. It has uh, uh, some healing properties for your ulcers. I don't know anything about that. Maybe you could help us, my friend. <laughs> okay, All right? Medical residency—that's why I'm pointing to Orest here. Okay, All right. Use for a purpose, which leads to the question: Why do you want to drink? Is it an escape? Is it self-medicating because you're 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 challenged by life? And, and it's just sort of easing the pain, right? Use a little wine for the sake of your stomach. Famously, the Good Samaritan, when he came across the man who was wounded by the side of the road, he says he poured in oil and wine. Wine is for cleansing. It has, it has a cleansing attribute, right? So that's just a little bit of free information, but I do wanna talk just for a moment about alcohol. I probably should wait a week and talk about this when the room is full of (laughs) freshmen and students, but uh, uh, anyway, uh, according to a 2020 national survey on drug abuse and mental health by the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration, Alcohol is by far the most commonly abused substance in the United States. Alcohol, by far, by a factor of I don't know what, way more than opiates, which dominate the headlines, overdoses and such. Alcohol, 140 million people, nearly half of all people over the age of 12, reported drinking alcohol in the last month. At the time of the survey in 2020 by this organization, nearly half of all Americans, 12 years old and over, had consumed some alcohol. 28 million people, 12 or older, reported struggling with alcohol use disorder, AUD. 12 years old and older. Why do you want to have a drink? Do you understand the risks that are involved here, right? According to a website, alcohol.org, at least 50% of student sexual assaults involve alcohol. I'm talking just like campus ministry now. Approximately 90% of rapes perpetrated by sexual assault events involve alcohol use by the victim and 69% by the perpetrator. In one third of sexual assaults, the aggressor is intoxicated. This became very, very sad and personal uh, about four years ago on Parents' Weekend when the parents came to visit their son and they couldn't find him because Anthony Cialis had fallen into the gorge and his body was at the bottom. Because. On October 24th, he went to the frat t- to get haze so he could join, what was it, Phi Kappa Psi, and they forced him to drink until he was out of his mind, polo shirt which was full of puke. So it hits pretty close to home, just a word about alcohol. Again. Noah wasn't a perfect man. What we have presented to us here by this hall of famer, <laughs> he's in Hebrews 11, is not a man who is spotless, right? He walked with God. He was a righteous man, cultivated in way he couldn't wait. It wasn't, I don't think it was his first taste of wine. I think that he, I don't know why, he just went too far. And then in verses 25 to 27, we have the only words ever recorded by Noah. And he speaks really prophetically, which makes perfect sense to me for a man who has spent so much time living with God. He's got a word from God to say. And it says, he awoke from his wine. He knew what his younger son had done to him. And then he said, curse be Canaan, a servant of servants. He shall be to his brethren. And he said to And he said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and may Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth, and may he dwell in the sense of Shem, and may Canaan be his servant. So we see Canaan mentioned numerous times here. So Canaan, actually, in case you're not aware, we'll see it in the next chapter, but he was Ham's youngest son. You ever heard of the Canaanites? Of course you have. You've read your Old Testament. They were just sort of a a broad title for the people who lived in Israel when the Israelites came into the land. And the Canaanites were idolatrous and had horrible practices among themselves, including sodomy and bestiality and incest and bizarre. Noah is not cursing Ham. He's just prophetically declaring that from Ham will come a people group with horrible behaviors. And they will be servants to Shem, the God of Shem. And Abraham comes from Shem. The Israelites come from Shem. He is the godly line, right? Something that stuck in my mind that I read years ago as a brand new Christian. and you have a person describing the Jew, the Israelites. And we'll see that when we get to Genesis 12. But we have a stream of life, right? You got all of humanity from Noah's three sons going down this massive river of life. And then at one point in time, God stuck his finger into the river and he just pulled a little, and he pulled out a little tributary and he separated from the main river, his people, the Jew. And they came from Shem. And sure enough, this came to pass because when Israel came into the land, they subdued the Canaanites and they became servant to God's people. May God enlarge Japheth and may he dwell in the tents of Shem and may Canaan be his servant. And Noah lived after the flood 350 years. So all the days of Noah were 950 years and he died, (laughs) all right? So chapter nine, there you go. The beautiful picture of exiting into a new life of fruitfulness and liberty and respect for the blood. The blood is life, respect for government, living under a new covenant, right? And I just want to encourage, how do you finish well? I want to encourage you to finish well. Augie Genesis, I don't know if we'll see you again. Right? Who knows what life has for us, for any of us. So the Lord's saying, finish well. Noah, maybe he finished well. It's a bump in the road. He he didn't lose salvation. Right? He's still a righteous man, and he ends up in the hall of faith, and he inherited righteousness, he went to heaven. We'll see the man someday. Right? But my friends, finish well. We have to be as alert after the victory as we were before the battle. And they're only saying that because it would seem that Noah just had kind of a, a, a lapse of advancing. And it seemed like he just settled in and maybe got a little too comfortable. Seldom does a Christian indulge the flesh when engaged in a trial or affliction, but often does a Christian indulge the flesh when they let down their guard. David stopped fighting. It was a time when kings should go to war. David said, you guys go ahead, I'm going to stay home. Two days later, he's in bed with another man's wife and then murders her husband. You have to be as diligent after the victory as before the battle. So what do we do? Abide in the vine. Seems like an appropriate verse based on this whole story of planting a vineyard. Right? This whole idea of a vineyard takes on an all it takes is personalized by Jesus himself. I'm the vine. I am the true vine. My father is the vine dresser. You are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. For without me you can do nothing. So here's what I would say to ourselves. Stay thirsty, my friends. (laughs) Right? You know, when Jesus talked about someone who comes, he said, blessed are the poor in spirit. That's the way we live. That's the way we live. That's the way the the Lord, you can connect those two verses. Abide in the vine. Apart from me, you can do nothing. We are constantly, always, and every day Dependent on him. And that's how we finish well. Okay? Humble yourself and realize, I don't have the grace needed to engage with myself, my wife, my kids, my family, the church, my community, the people I go to school with, the people I work with. I can't do this on my own. Blessed are the poor in spirit. And the word is literally somebody who is reduced to nothing but the clothes on his back. Zero assets completely dependent on something outside of himself to survive. Oh, how happy is that man? Abide in the vine. Be filled with the Spirit. Ephesians 5.18. Seems like an appropriate verse. Don't be drunk with wine, wherein is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. One of my favorite verses is in the Song of Solomon, the opening verse. Your love is better than wine. I thought, why? Well, because of the effects of wine wear off. Love never fails. Amen? Keep yourselves in the love of God. And don't get worried about repetition in your Christian life. I sometimes get hung up on that. I'm sometimes like, Lord, here I am again, and I feel like I'm saying the same thing again for the billionth time. I need you, I need your cross, I thank you for the cross. That is a sign of dependence, and the Lord, it blesses his heart. The Lord said in his heart, oh, that's beautiful. What I'm, this worship that's coming up to me, it's a pleasing aroma. Be filled with the spirit. Wine is a depressant. The Spirit is a stimulant. He gives us the love of God and power and self control and joy and peace and gentleness and patience and kindness and goodness. Finish well, abide in the Lord. Be filled with the Spirit. Press on toward the goal, Paul's words. One thing I do, that's Paul, one thing. Forget what is behind accomplishments and failures, I tend to remember both a lot. Forget that, that's the one thing. And straining forward to what lies ahead, which is heaven. It is seeing Jesus face to face and living with the multitude of saints and the angels and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's stand. Thank you so much, Lord. Thank you for revealing yourself, Jesus, for revealing the new covenant, for connecting us to the life of Noah in very real terms, in very real practical ways. Thank you, Lord. You are the same yesterday, today, and forever. You are the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. Thank you, Lord. Pour out your grace and your spirit on your church.